I'm going to read our passage out of Luke. We're reading out of Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, the parable of the prodigal son. I'm so glad that uh, Brett's teaching on this today. So I'll start in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Good morning, Regen, and friends and visitors. I'm mostly glad to be preaching this morning. I feel I was given a bit of a rough deal, because Albert has PowerPoint, and last week... Bernard reminded us or showed us that Albert has PowerPoints and he brought along his boxing moves. And I was sitting there going, I'm preaching next week, I don't have PowerPoints and I don't have boxing moves. So I feel like I'm a bit on the back foot and how do I aspire to reach those heights? I have a hat. <sighs> I figured maybe that would help. And I have a stuffed dolphin. I've introduced some of you before. This is no Bob, the stuffed dolphin. I was going to call him Bob, but he doesn't. Bob. So Albert has PowerPoints. Bernard has boxing moves. I have a hat and a dolphin. And I figured maybe that would be enough. But I see that for some of you, it is not. Have no fear. My dolphin has a hat. <laughs> I feel I'm getting close. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the challenge that lies in it. We thank you for the encouragement of a God who is not distant and removed, 
We thank you for the encouragement of a God who comes running down the street when we turn to repent and head back and embraces us and throws a party even before we get a chance to repent. We thank you for the love that you have for us, which is so immense that you didn't just send messengers. You came yourself. You showed up. You brought the message. You lived out the message. You demonstrated that it is possible to live this kingdom life. And so we just want to thank you, and we just want to take another moment just to bask in that, just to rejoice in who you are and in who you've called us to be. And I pray that through the message this morning, you will bring us one step closer to being people of your kingdom, people of light and salt and the fragrance of Christ that spread it everywhere we go. And so I just invite your spirit to really make the words hit home. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story that John read is maybe one of most people's favorite stories. John put me on the spot there because he said, oh, I'm so glad Brett's preaching from this story. And often when we hear the story preached, we skip the little kind of PS at the end. It's almost like Jesus tells this great story and there's this little bit he kind of sneaks in at the end and we don't like that bit, so we focus on the prodigal son and we tell that story and oh yeah, and there was this little bit with the big brother. But I just want to read that last bit again because that is actually the bit I want to use today. And so this party is going on. The father hears that the son is standing outside. He's not at the party. So in Luke 15, 28, it says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so as I said, like this part of the story, we seldom hear about. People don't generally go to it in depth. But on those rare occasions when a preacher at the front has kind of spoken at the brother when I've been reading the story and I get to the brother, but he really used to annoy me and make me angry. Like, how could the brother act this way? Because the story is about the younger brother and the father and this amazing kind of reconciliation and this amazing like being brought back together and then this is this kind of ruins it this dude just hanging outside and so he used to make me so angry and I used to think what a and I'm going to need some help on this because I don't know how to finish the sentence when I was trying to describe the older brother the first word is the word chop which I think is a South African slang I'm not sure that you call people chops in this country does that happen no okay if you can help me out what would be a word to carry kind of the emotion of what we would say the guy was a chop what is a suitable Christian version of that word that I can use to refer to the older brother does anyone have a suggestion for me jerk there we go I was at Starbucks drinking peppermint mocha and <laughs> the word jerk didn't come to me. Cool. And so I used to get really angry with this jerk and I thought, what a jerk. Until I realized that he was me. Oh. I want to read you another story from Matthew chapter 20. And this is a lesser told story. It's quite a good one. Jesus tells it. 
But we don't hear about it a lot, and I was surprised to read how many verses it is, because it feels like a two-verse story. And I'm sure you know it. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And so this is a great but generally lesser used story, right? But these first oaks, again, like the brother, they used to really annoy me. It's like, dude, you got what you were promised. Like, you were promised a denarius, you got a denarius. Like, chill. Don't begrudge the guys that got the same and worked a little bit less. So I used to get really angry until I realized they were me. Let's look at another story in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. This is Jesus in the temple. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So once again, this Pharisee really used to annoy me. However, when I read this story, I struggled to identify with the tax collector either, because I thought this guy is a little bit woe is me, like he feels a little bit depressed. And I know the Pharisee is the bad guy, so I should align to him, but I don't really want to be that guy either. But then I'd look at the first guy again and, and realize that he was way over the top. And so I'd start to kind of celebrate my tax collectorness in the story. And in fact, as you can maybe imagine by now, the first guy really started to annoy me. What a jerk. I just had dot, dot, dot in my notes, but now I know what goes there. And so you can guess where this is going, and so say it with me, until I realized he was... No, it's just me, okay. Cool. We'll get you guys there. So let's change tack a little. Let's head over to the Old Testament and look at the story of Jonah. 
And I think you all probably know the story of Jonah. God sends him on this voyage to Nineveh to go and warn all these people. And he decides to go in the opposite direction. And God sends a big storm. And he gets thrown overboard. And he gets eaten by fish. And he gets vomited out onto the shore. And he ends up going and doing what God said. And so there's a message there already. But he eventually ends up going to preach to all the people. And in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry with the vine? I do, he said, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Blah, 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 until I realized that he was me. And just reading all of these stories, I realized that I have the tendency to be like Jonah, that I have the tendency to be like the characters in all of these stories that I really don't like. I look at their actions, and it's easy to identify with the characters I do like. But if I look honestly in each of those stories, I find elements of my own life that resonate. For Jonah, it was justice or the letter of the law or people getting what they deserved which became more important than the lives of over 120,000 people. Can we just take a moment on that? I don't know if you can think of something relevant, some other situation where it feels like you're fighting for justice and the situation is involving the lives of hundreds, thousands of people. And we lose sight of that because justice must happen. Justice often takes on the form of revenge to us. We must get them back for what they did to us. So if we start at a very broad kind of angle, I think that when you start cheering for people to go to hell, you are quite comfortably on the wrong side of what we believe and who we are. And we see that, and I don't really have a pet peeve against these guys, but this is my 
fourth preacher and the second time I'm mentioning them, but with Westboro Baptists who call themselves a church, and yet often in their sloganing and in their picketing or whatever, there seems to be this joy or this cheering about the fact that people are going to go to hell. And so it's quite easy to look at that and distance ourselves from that and go, okay, that is definitely not right. When you start to cheer that people are going to hell, easy to see that that's wrong. I think if we bring it a little bit closer, when we start cheering when people die, I feel like we are quite comfortably on the wrong side of who we are and what we are about. We saw this when both Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden were killed. Pictures of people cheering and dancing and partying on the streets. And while I think the hope that, that this act that has happened might lead to a better world or might lead to a more peaceful situation, while that is something that can be celebrated, just the idea of cheering as a result of somebody dying feels uncomfortable to me. It feels uncomfortable to me in the context of the Bible and Jesus and his message. For me, the death penalty falls into the same category, and I know this is where we start to strongly divide opinion, because I've had many discussions and arguments with Christians who can use the same book that I do and totally tell you why the death penalty is okay. And I can use the same book and totally tell you why it's not okay. And so it seems to be a lot more debatable, and there's strong opinions on both sides. My friend Shane puts it like this, which I really like. It is bizarre to me that we kill people to teach them that killing people is wrong. I've also seen a bumper sticker that reads, When Jesus said we should love our enemies, I don't think he meant kill them. And then if we bring it even a little bit more closer, I think it was a year ago, maybe a couple of years ago, Rob Bell released his book Love Wins, which I haven't had a chance to read yet. And so much of the stuff kind of happened before the book even came out. And so people that had had pre-reads of the book and people that watched kind of the promo video started making claims that Rob Bell was a universalist. And one of their fundamental beliefs seems to be along the lines of everyone makes it. So either this belief that there is no hell or the fact that everyone kind of gets to heaven. Everyone gets to be with God. In the end, everyone's okay. Now, I can't agree with that kind of thinking or teaching, maybe more specifically, because I think the Bible, and particularly Jesus' teaching, seems to strongly indicate that although hell is a place that was designed for the devil and his angels, it wasn't a place created for people, it is still a reality for those who reject Jesus and his teachings. And it seems to be really strong through the Bible that those who turn their backs on God will end up separated from God, however that looks. And we can debate if hell is an actual place or if it's a status of being or if people just disappear and are no more or whatever. But there's this strong sense through Jesus' teaching of people who are going to be told to depart from me, of people who are going to be separated, of people that are going to have this eternal separation and that it's not a great thing. And I think what really struck me with a lot of the criticism towards Rob Bell in this book, which, like I said, a lot of it happened before people had even read the book, but just in the previews to the book, is that it almost seemed, and kind of sometimes listening to the arguments with the death penalty as well, it almost seems that some Christians take joy in the fact that many people are heading towards hell or separation from God. Like, people would violently, in some cases, or just aggressively, defend the fact and it's almost, there's the sense of actually 
almost that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping that we make it and we're quite okay or almost cheering on the fact that other people don't. And it's not everyone. And it's not something that I think people would admit blatantly, but often in our thoughts and actions and the way we kind of work this stuff out, it's almost as if that is our mentality, that I make it and these are the other people that make it and you don't, and that's okay with me. And while I do believe in heaven and hell, however it looks, and that some people will live with God forever and some people will be eternally separated from Him, there's a small piece in me that kind of hopes that I'm wrong, in a sense. And it really falls in line with if the stuff that I believe that the Bible is saying and that Jesus is saying is right, then the consequences of that are that people that I love are going to be separated from God. And so that really should bum me out. And I'm not questioning the theology of that, because that is what I believe. But I'm just challenging our hearts. Like, that should really be something that breaks us. That is not a thing to take joy in. That should be something that we wrestle with God with a lot. Like, God, how can that be so? And it shouldn't be just something we easily accept, and it's like, cool, all the people that don't love God go to hell, and that's fine. I don't think so anyway. And so the question, or one of the questions that I have is, do we tend towards exclusivity? Like, these are the people that make it, these are the people that are going to be there. Or do we tend towards inclusivity? Are we focused, and are we living lives that are constantly pulling people in, drawing people in? Because if we look at the life of Jesus, that seems to be a lot of what he was about. Not judging people and condemning them, but saying, hey, this is where it's happening. Come closer. Come take a look. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. And so Jesus hung out with the kind of people that the religious leaders were putting on the outside of their barriers. And so culturally, there were people like the lepers that were thrown outside of the city. Jesus pulled them in. Within the synagogue, there were certain people that weren't allowed to come close. And so the prostitutes and the drunkards, and you see Jesus getting accused of hanging out with these people. Those people are definitely on the outside. The people that keep the law, the people that follow what we say, the people that pray in the right way, that follow the right rituals, they can come and be in our fold, and everyone is out. And Christianity through the ages has, in some ways, been really good at defining who's in and out, instead of inviting and calling and welcoming and praying and desperately wanting people to come closer and come in. And so are we more focused on ushering people near and kind of directing them towards Jesus and pointing them towards God in the hope that there'll be a connection and an interaction and something that makes their hearts change in the hope that we create a space for the Holy Spirit to come in and really change their lives? However, that's what I want. That's what I desire to be that kind of person. But I tend to think that a larger part of me too often resembles the older brother in the prodigal son story. Arms crossed, sulking outside. I can't believe you forgave him. I can't believe the grace and mercy that you showed him. He deserves to be thrown out of this family. Focus on me. Like, God, I've been serving you all this time, and this guy gets saved and gets the attention or the fame or the opportunities or whatever. What about me? I've been here the whole time. This should be mine. And so that causes me to pray, God, please help me to rejoice when you shower others with grace, mercy, material blessings, whatever it is. Help me to celebrate with them. 
The older brother should have been kind of relaxed or safe or at ease with what he had. As the father says, like, everything I have is yours. Your inheritance is guaranteed. But join me in celebrating this moment that this lost brother of yours has returned. Help us to celebrate when we see the people that God can't reach those people. Those people are impossible. When they turn around, let's rejoice in that. Let's be super amped. Let's push them to the front. Let's be excited about that. Secondly, a large part of me too often resembles the workers at the end of the day, complaining that we got the same reward or wage as those who only worked an hour. And it's that sense of like, God, are you kidding? Look at everything I've done. And this person kind of sneaks in at the last moment. I mean, the other picture I get is the thief hanging on the cross next to Jesus and just wondering how the early church dealt with that. Like in his last dying moments, Jesus says, you're in. And it's like, really, God? Like, I've given my whole life to you. And there's Pharisees that had done all this stuff for God, and yet Jesus had repeatedly given them the idea that maybe they weren't in. And suddenly Jesus allows this thief, this murderer, this terrorist, he says, you're in. And so sometimes my heart is colder towards those who have kind of started the journey a bit later than me, and maybe opportunities they get and maybe blessings they get. And so again, that prayer, God, help me to rejoice when you shower others with grace and mercy and material blessing. Help me to celebrate them. Thirdly, a large part of me self-identifies with the Pharisee praying in the synagogue, thank you, God, that I am not like that person, like the Christians in that church. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those who speak in tongues, like those who don't use drums in worship, whatever it is. Those who are not like us, the street evangelist with the megaphone. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the Pentecostal shoddy preacher that wakes my wife up every Sunday morning. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the fill-in-your-own-phobia there. And that causes me to pray, God, help me to look and listen for you in those who do things dramatically different to me and my box of you. And I think an amazing example of that is Pope Francis, because I know that good Protestants are not allowed to like the Pope. <sighs> so he's been making me feel really bad this last year, because again and again and again, as I see a news report, as I see something he's done or something he's said, as I read that Pope Francis sneaks out at night to go and feed the homeless people, as I read that when a new Pope is elected, all of the Vatican get bonuses, and the Pope took those bonuses and distributed them amongst the poor. As I see a picture of the Pope embracing a horribly disfigured person, as I hear the story of the Pope going into the prison and washing the feet symbolically of 12 prisoners, including a woman and a Muslim, in terms of going, this is what Jesus was about. And so even though we're not supposed to like the Pope, it's just there's so much in him that just resembles Jesus so strongly. And so again and again, I see truth there. And I celebrate that truth. And sure, there's some things that he says that I don't agree with. But God, help me to see the truth where it is. Help me to see where you are shining through the hearts and the words and the actions of other people. Help me to see where the kingdom has already come, where it might not look like it should be coming because there are no Christians in that area. Help me to see that you got there first and that you are already doing work. 
Help me to identify your truth. And then lastly, I identify with Jonah, sitting under the vine with such a small focus. God, how can you let this plant die? And God looking down at him, Jonah, how can you not care about 120,000 people? How often does my gaze get stuck in my mirror? Me, my issues, my family, our church, this city, this country. When God might be calling me to look outside, to look at the other, to look at those in greater need, to look at those who are living in darkness and want me to really be filled with compassion and love and hope and action towards them. And so that brings me to this prayer, and let's close with this. God, help me to look outside of myself, to my family, to the church community, to those with less than me, to the greater church body, and to the world. Father, I pray that this morning we can be honest when we read the stories and not be too quick to align ourselves with the heroes when there might be elements of the villain lurking in our hearts. I pray that your spirit will bring those things to the fore so that we can fall down before you and just repent and confess and turn around. Father, we don't want to end up living lives like the religious people of your day when you walked around that in one sense were doing all the right stuff but in another sense had missed the message completely. Help us to constantly find ourselves at the place of asking, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Help us to be inclusive, help us to be ushering in, help us to be sharing the call, help us to be telling stories and praying for people and letting people know that God loves them, not when they sort themselves out. God loves them right now. Help us to see the potential in people that you love so deeply. Help us to be your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.